This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you're listening to The Faith Experiment. And this is episode number 36, and I'm calling this episode Four Questions About Hell. Now, in this episode, I have a great free book to give away. It's called The Hot Topic of Hell. The Bible writes about it, preachers preach about it, people talk about it, but is it a real place? Is it a myth? Do you really burn continually? It's a hot topic, no matter which way you look at it. So you've got to get this book today. It's a great book. And to get it, you need to text in today's code word, which I'll give you during the show. And you'll need to text that code word to the Faith Experiment number 0488845311. So save this number in your phone right now, 04888. Four five three double one, and wait for today's code word. I love hearing from you in the Faith Experiment, and I'd love to hear from you again today. Where are you listening to the Faith Experiment from? Let me know by emailing me on Robbie at faithfm.com.au or text me on oh four triple eight four five three double one. Now, the Faith Experiment, what is it? It's about putting faith into practice. If you're joining me for the first time, it's all about experimenting with faith. And on the show so far, I've been sharing with you my own personal journey of how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. We've looked at how to enhance our study of these ancient manuscripts. And we've been looking at, in the last few episodes, questions that people have about life. And we've been looking at the answers from these biblical manuscripts. So I'll be exploring some more questions today. In fact, four questions, all on the topic of hell. So over the past few episodes, I've been taking your questions, as many as I can, and digging into these ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts to find the answers. And the answers are based on these texts. You may not like the answers, but as I always say, Facts don't care about your feelings. We're after the facts here. This is a faith experiment show. So I hope that you'll enjoy as we continue on this little mini-series. So far in this little mini-series, we looked at the question, the most important question perhaps, which came from Eva, who asked, how can you be sure that the Bible is actually God's word and is it trustworthy? And we went through and we looked at various viewpoints of prophecy, science, archaeology, history and maths and the impact it's had on people personally. And whichever way you look at it, there is enough evidence that suggests that this is a supernatural book that is worth our time to experiment with. We've also looked at a bunch of questions around prophecy about COVID-19, the end of the world, the rapture. We've looked at death. We've looked at peace and sin and guilt. We've looked at the mark of the beast, looked at the COVID vaccine. And on our last episode, we looked at the certainty of death, and we found that death is described as sleep, and that despite the common teachings in Christianity, the dead do not go right to heaven, but enter a state of sleep, where they wait until the second coming of Jesus. Okay, now I had a number of you texting questions about my last episode, The Certainty of Death, and I want to pick up just two of these questions that came in. They were really good questions, and I thought they deserved to be answered And since we just did death, I want to answer them before we continue on talking about hell. This first text comes from SK, who writes, Hi, Robbie, my name is SK. I listen to your program, The Faith Experiment, often. I listen to your episode regarding death. The medium contacted Samuel the prophet. What are your thoughts on that? Because Samuel complains about being woken up. 
Well, thank you very much, SK. I am so grateful that you're a regular listener to The Faith Experiment. And this is a good question. I have had this question a number of times when people hear what the Bible teaches about the dead going to a state of sleep and not being in heaven and not being in hell. They're just asleep or a state of unconsciousness. And people ask this question, well, what about Saul? Saul called up Samuel the prophet. Now, let's have a look at this question. I think it's really important to uh, to sort of just look at this biblically. So, first of all, let's remember this. The Bible clearly condemns the practice of spiritualism. In fact, Moses wrote in Leviticus 19, verse 26 and 31, it says, You shall not eat anything with blood in it. You shall not practice witchcraft. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. So it's pretty clear from the Bible, from the very beginning, book of Leviticus, God condemns the practice of spiritism, which is the art, the art or the act of trying to communicate with the dead or spirits. And the Lord added to this warning through Jeremiah talking to his people. In Jeremiah 27 verse 9, it says, You therefore must not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you, with the result that you'll be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish." Those who practice these things were not to be tolerated by God's people. In the contrary, they are actually commanded to be put to death. In Exodus 22, verse 18, it says, You shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. It's pretty clear from the Bible that spiritism or spiritualism, where you are trying to seek out the, the communication with the dead, it is a forbidden practice by God, clearly, even with the punishment being death. And we've already seen in the last episode that the Bible is clear that death is described as asleep and that those who enter into death are unable to come back. They have no thoughts, they don't praise the Lord and all those sorts of things. So we've got that foundation. So now let's look at this story for what it is and how it actually is communicated. So although the Bible condemns spiritism or the living talking to the dead, there is this story in Scripture that seems to show that this actually is possible. But let's have a look at some biblical background. The book of First Samuel gives us an account of an experience of King Saul with a medium in the city of Endor. The prophet Samuel is already dead at this point in the story, and the army of the Philistines has gathered to fight against Israel. Now, seeing how vast the army of the enemy was, Saul becomes afraid and Saul decides to go and inquire of the Lord. However, God is no longer speaking to Saul because of his continued disobedience. That's been happening for years before this event takes place. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6, it says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Uma or by the prophets. Now, these were the three authorized ways that God had established to communicate to his people either by dreams, by the Uma, that's the, the, the rock that would glow, or by the prophets. Now, since God had turned his back on Saul, God was not communicating with Saul anymore. That was done and dusted. His, his sort of probation had closed, even while Samuel was still alive. The king decides to resort to spiritism. So Saul had previously put out all the witches of the land. In fact, in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, it says, Now Samuel had died, and all of Israel had mourned for him, and he was buried in Ramah, in his own city. Saul had expelled the mediums and the wizards from the land. It's very clear. He's already done that. But although 
all the mediums and spirits have been driven to the land, Saul asks his servants to find a medium or a witch, which he could go and consult about the future, seeing that God wouldn't say anything to him. And discovering that there was a witch in the town of Endor, Saul disguises himself and he gets information, or he tries to get information about the future. So already we can see in the story that there's fundamental problems with this story being an example of what is right. In fact, complete opposite. This is a warning against what is wrong. Samuel is already dead. Saul has already disconnected himself from God. And now when he's turned back to God, and again, it's uh, it's not a genuine repentance here by any stretch of the imagination, as he tries to turn, turn back to God out of this fear of being wiped out by the Philistines, God doesn't respond to him because the bridge is already already uh, broken, so to speak. And so now he turns back to the very ones that he kicked out under the instructions that he had from God. So there's already fundamental problems with this story. So Saul came to the medium at Endor at night, and he asked her to bring up the prophet Samuel for him. And this is what the Bible says happened. In 1 Samuel 28, verse 12 and 13, it says, When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out the top of her voice and said, Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. Now, the next thing in the passage, Samuel speaks, and Samuel says, why have you disturbed me from bringing me up? Now, Samuel seems to be complaining that he's being disturbed in his peace in the realm of the dead. But then Samuel turns around and says through the medium that Saul will die the next day. The scriptures say in chapter 31 of Samuel, verse 3 and 5, it says, The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him, and he was wounded by them. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer was unwilling, for he was terrified. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died too. Now, there's a number of questions about this passage. What is actually happening here? Is Samuel really coming back from the dead to talk to Saul? Well, there's a number of clues in the passage that suggest that that is not the case. In fact, it's pretty clear it's not the case. First of all, we know that the consistency of Scripture is clear, that the dead, when they die, they know nothing. We saw that in our last episode. They don't go to heaven. They don't praise God. They don't have thoughts. They don't have fears. They don't have love. They don't have passion. They cease to be. So Samuel, when he died, like everybody else, he would have ceased to be. So who was this? Well, first clue is this. Saul never sees Samuel. It's the woman who says it was Samuel. She's the one that's described as seeing it. Now, she's already a predefined character in this narrative. She is a witch. She is a medium. This is what she does. So she has seen something, and she has told Saul that it's Samuel. Saul even says, what's, what's, what's he say? Ask the question. What are you seeing? So Saul is completely oblivious to what's taking place around him. This is all a one-way story between the woman or the witch and this, this manifestation. And it's also interesting that the prophecy didn't actually come true the way it was predicted. He wasn't killed in battle. He was killed through the act of self-inflicted death or suicide. Now, look, the key to this passage is really that Saul doesn't see Samuel. He doesn't hear Samuel. This is purely an 
in an encounter happening between the witch and between some manifestation. Now, what's really interesting in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew passage, the word used in Greek here to describe this witch is the word we get an English word for ventriloquist. So, she was a ventriloquist, according to the, the rabbis when they translated this passage, which means that she impersonates voices. So if we look at the entirety of Scripture and we know what it teaches about death, I mean, it's very, very clear what happens when a person dies. Then when we view this passage in context, first, it's clear that this is an act of disobedience. And this act of disobedience leads to an act of deception. So I hope that helps, SR. Don't forget to get the book that I was giving away on the last episode because it helps answer some of these questions in even more detail. So I hope that makes sense. I have one more question here from Michael who texted in. How was the thief on the cross saved when Jesus said, Today you'll be in me in paradise? Well, thanks, Michael. That's a great question. Let's read the story in Luke chapter 23. It says, Then he said to Jesus, this is the thief, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, notice what Jesus did not say. Jesus didn't say, Today you will be with me in heaven. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, in English, we often conclude that the word paradise is heaven. It's interchangeable. Well, the problem is with this passage, it's not entirely correct. You see, the word paradise in the original language, in the Greek here, is the word Eden. So paradise is literally translated from the Hebrew word Eden. And Jesus used the word heaven a lot. He used the word the kingdom of heaven is like. But in this passage, speaking to the thief on the cross, he doesn't say, today you will be with me in heaven. He says, today you will be with me in Eden, in paradise. So Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross, I'm telling you that you will be with me in Eden, in paradise. This isn't referring to heaven. Now, the question is, where is Eden? Well, let's ask Jesus that question. He answers that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's the same word there, Eden, which makes perfect sense, right? Because the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. Now, where is Eden? Because wherever Eden is, it's where the tree of life is. Now, notice what we find in Revelation 22, verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who keep his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Notice the tree of life, which we know is in the middle of Eden. Here in this passage, just described as being inside the city. And in the context, the city is the new Jerusalem. So let's pull that together. We know from Jesus and the prophets that at death, we know nothing. Everything perishes. Our thoughts, our love, we don't praise the Lord. There's nothing. The Bible calls it sleep. Even Jesus calls it sleep. And now on the cross, Jesus turns to this thief and says to him, I'm telling you today, as in like, you have my word. This is certain. You will be with me. This is a promise for something in the future. You will be with me. Where will Jesus be? In the paradise of God, in Eden. Where is that? Where the tree of life is. And where do we see this place? In the new Jerusalem. And where's new Jerusalem? On the new earth. So no, Jesus isn't saying that on the day of his death, he's going to heaven. Far from that. But Jesus 
gives this man the greatest gift he could give him. He's a repentant sinner who's breathing his last breath. He's got questions of certainty, questions about hope. And Jesus turns to him and gives him assurance that he is forgiven and that he is saved. So, Michael, I hope that helps. That was an excellent question. And just keep digging deeper and you will continue to find the beauty and the simplicity and the consistency of Scripture. Now, if you've missed any of the previous episodes, you want to catch up some of the details, you can get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for The Faith Experiment. You can also find The Faith Experiment on all good podcasting platforms, making it easy for you to keep up to date. So today's episode, I'm going to be answering four questions I have been asked about hell. So stick around. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 4 That's 4 Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Oh, you are-
the Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to the Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Roy Bergen, and that was Lauren Daigle with First. And this is episode 36 of the Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Four Questions About Hell. Now, the four questions I've received on this topic are as follows. Kelly texting question number one. If God is so good and God is a God of love, why is there a hell? Good question, Kelly. Question number two. Megan asks, what is hell and when will it occur? Question number three comes from Brian who asks, where on earth is hell? What does the Bible teach? Is it at the center of the earth or is it another dimension? Brian. And question number four. Adrian asks, Why will sinners suffer and burn in hell forever and ever? Well, let's explore what these ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts we call the Bible today, what they actually teach about hell. Because after all, this is the faith experiment and we are interested in the facts. And we have found that these ancient texts prove their reliability and credibility from any viewpoint you look at. And so now let's dive in. Well, the topic of hell is one that shapes or is shaped by your view of who and what God is. You see, many people see God as some sort of hard and harsh and vindictive judge. He's often perceived as one who's out there somewhere just waiting to throw people into everlasting hell, an everlasting hell of torment and agony. And if you do one thing wrong, zap with a thunderbolt of judgment and you are on your way to hell. Now, these perceptions of God have been developed throughout the centuries of Christian preachers frightening their congregations with these vivid descriptions of the horrors of hell. And it almost appears like if you can make hell the scariest place in the universe, more scarier than a horror movie or anything you can possibly imagine, then somehow the idea of trying to avoid the billions of years of agonizing pain and torment becomes a less attractive option, and therefore you choose by default to follow God. This is kind of the methodology that's been employed for at least the last couple of hundred years, if not a couple, well, a thousand years or so. Now, you often see this thought reflected even in modern times. I've been, when I lived in the United States, I've been around neighborhoods and I've seen churches and they used to have those big old um, signboards at the front of their churches on the street so traffic can see the signs. I remember seeing signs like, um, how will you spend eternity? Smoking or non-smoking, referring and implying that you've got two choices. You either burn forever or you don't burn forever. Another sign I remember seeing had the big big title simply said, turn or burn, meaning repent or be consumed by fire. You know, this idea has uh, become more and more popular over the last 2,000 years. But in the last, you know, 50 years or so, it's become less popular in the Christian church as the church seems to be uh, reducing the amount of fire and brimstone messaging that you hear in the public domain. Now, look, the question is this. The question is, if God is a God of love, then why is there a hell? And, you know, where is this hell? Is it is it at now? Is it somewhere I'm going to go when I die if I've not fulfilled the requirements and these sorts of ideas that people have? And those who are, who are going to hell... Do they burn forever? Are they burning forever? This is what we want to explore on this episode. I'm going to come back once we've explored this from the ancient manuscripts and look directly at these four questions that I've been asked and we'll, we'll find answers for them. But let's first set the foundation here. In 
Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, the Bible does something remarkable. God actually claims to give us his opinion on death, the death of the wicked. This is what it says, Ezekiel, 20, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. It says, I, this is God speaking, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So from the very outset of this topic about hell, I want it to be clear that God has made the point that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Will there be death of the wicked? Absolutely. But there is no pleasure on God's front from this side of this this death of the wicked thing at all. And this makes good sense because we, we, we remember that when Jesus came here, he said in, we know the famous verse, John 3.16, he said, God so loved the world, that includes the wicked, not just righteous people, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. So he wants people not to perish. Perishing of, of people is the, the opposite of God's whole purpose and plan. But the reality is there's no solution, no other solution to getting rid of this virus of sin than the destruction of sin itself and those who have chosen it. As, as long as sin is present, it will result in human misery. And therefore, it must be eradicated. It must be annihilated. And so God must destroy sin at some point because sin is destroying people. There's nothing more precious to God than people. So God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 12, it calls the, the, the act of this fire, this hellfire, this, this concept, it calls it an unusual act or a strange act, depending on your translation. So it's very clear from the outset that this idea of the death of the wicked, it's, God has no pleasure in it. It's not his plan. In fact, he wants the other side of it. He wants people not to perish. But when it does happen, it will be seen as an unusual act for a loving God. Now, that's because the, the absolute desire of God is the salvation of sinners. And we find this in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God has a plan, and he's committed to this plan, to provide salvation for every single person. So this idea of a God that's just waiting there to throw lightning bolts and to get you into hell is absolutely opposite to the picture of Scripture. In fact, God is doing everything to save you from that scene. He's not going to force you to choose to be saved, but you're going to have to choose against him not to be saved, if that makes sense. So this idea that God is just waiting there to send us all to hell is completely foreign to the Bible. In fact, the question of, well, what's the purpose of hell then? Well, hell actually had as a very specific purpose, and we find Jesus teaches this in Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus said that the devil and his angels were the ones for which hell was prepared for. 
Hellfire is not for humans. There'll be humans in it, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't prepared for humans. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, the, the, the chief rebels of this great cosmic conflict. Hell wasn't designed for you. There's this comical myth depicting that the devil is the owner of hell. He's the manager of hell. And he's responsible for poking all of these, these uh, members of the hellish underworld with pitchforks while roasting and toasting them. But the Bible says that the devil and his angels will be thrown into this place of fire, this lake of fire, as it's called in Revelation, and they'll be turned into ashes. Ezekiel 28 verse 18 says that they will become ashes under the feet. So this idea that hell is the domain of the underworld, is the domain of the devil, is absolutely foreign to the Bible. Now, you can join the devil in being thrown into this lake of fire if you really want to. In the end, the decision is up to you. But you're going to have to fight against God to get there because God's doing everything he can to get you from going to that place. So the big question is, is there anyone right now today in hell? Well, Jesus taught in Matthew 13, verse 40. He said, As the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. You see, the traditional view of hell as a smoldering furnace somewhere in the belly of the earth where the wicked people end up to as soon as they die that's not what the Bible portrays. According to Jesus, the wicked, they are burned with fire at the end of the world. In other occasions, Jesus refers to this event as the last day, the last day of judgment. You see, the Bible teaches, as we saw in our last episode about the certainty of death, that at death everyone enters into the grave and they wait there to be woken up at the resurrection. And Jesus said, in John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, referring to the Son of Man, and they will come forth. And then he says this, Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The voice of Jesus will not only call the righteous from the grave, but he'll call the wicked from the grave. Not the wicked coming forth from hell, because they're not in hell, they're in the grave, just like every other human being who, who dies. So there's not a single person in hell today because hell is not here yet. Hell takes place at the end. Despite any image you've seen, any cartoon, any depiction of a devil with a pitchfork roasting, toasting people in the underworld, as you've seen it on The Simpsons, you've seen it and you've heard it in movies, it's, it's common reference despite that. It is not what the Bible teaches. And the reality is that makes God fair. The fact that there is no hell burning and, and roasting and toasting right now is an evidence that God is fair. Imagine this. Imagine that a person who died, let's say 6,000 years ago, the Bible records a story of the first person that committed murder as Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel. That took place about 6,000 years if we look at the genealogy of the Bible narratives. That, that man, as far as we know, Cain killed one man. He Maybe he killed others later, we don't know, but he, we know he killed one. Cain kills one man, 
he died 6,000 years ago. If the common theory of hell is believed, Cain has been roasting and toasting and in torment in hell for 6,000 years, about 6,000 years right now. Then we look at another person like Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler killed millions and millions of people, responsible for the death of millions of people. And Adolf Hitler, as far as we know, he's dead as well. But he only died, let's say, you know, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. That means, as of today, Adolf Hitler has only been burning, according to popular theory, he's been burning for about 50 years. Compare that with Cain, who is apparently there with him in hell, who has been burning for more than 6,000 years. Now, one person is burning for 6,000 years for one death. One person is burning uh, 50 years for millions of people's death. Now, no matter how far we go down the timeline now into the future, whether it's a million years or 10 million years or 3 trillion years, if the common belief of hell is as it is taught, that people could go to hell, they burn forever, that would mean that no longer how long time lasts, Cain's punishment will be 6,000 years greater than Adolf Hitler. Regardless of what they have done, it's simply based on the time. Now, this is not biblical. There's no evidence for this at all. Jesus taught that the wicked and the righteous who are in the grave will remain there till the last day to be called forth to the resurrection. Resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the condemned. It's very clear, and it makes God very just in the way that he deals with judgment. So, I guess the big question is, what will happen to the wicked when they go to hell then? If they're not going to burn forever, then what happens to them? In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. You see, hellfire does not burn forever. This idea of hell, it doesn't burn forever as is commonly believed. The fires of hell burn until the wicked are destroyed. Notice the word up in this text. The fire shall burn them up. When you burn something up, that's the end of it. Stubble gets consumed. It doesn't burn forever. And as we've already said, the most well-known text in the Bible, John 3.16, it says that sinners perish. They don't have eternal life in heaven or in hell. When a tree is burnt in a bushfire, the branches are burnt, but the roots usually are not burnt, and so the tree can live and grow again. But this text describes that the wicked, when they're consumed, when they're destroyed in hellfire, there is nothing left. There's no root nor branch. They're totally consumed, and there's no possibility of living again. In fact, if you look at some of the passages in the Bible that talk about the fate of the wicked in hell, you see these sorts of words. We've already said John 3.16, it talks about them perishing. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it talks about being dead or or non-existent. We just read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, that they're burnt up. In Psalm 37, verse 20, they vanish away. In Psalm 37, verse 9, they're cut off. In Psalm 140, 5 verse 20, they're destroyed. In Revelation 20 verse 9, they're devoured. In Psalm 21 verse 9, the fire shall devour them. 
And in Job 21 verse 30, it's called the day of doom. The wicked are destroyed. They perish and will not go on living forever and ever and ever in some state of continual burning. Well, it's time to take a short break now, but when we come back, we're going to continue looking at these four questions about hell. And coming up is the code word for today's great book, The Hot Topic of Hell. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. Sign 
upon his precious skin. I will know my Savior when I come to him by the mark where the nails have been. By the mark where the nails have been. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Roy Bergen, and that was The Wells Family with By The Mark. And this is episode 36 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode The Four Questions About Hell. And coming up is the code word for today's free offer, so make sure you stick around. Well, before the break, we've been exploring some texts from these ancient manuscripts about this topic of hell. What does the Bible actually teach? And we've found so far that the Bible teaches that God has no desire in the death of the wicked, despite the common picture out there that God's just itching to get you into hell. He's actually doing the opposite. He's doing everything to keep you from going to hell. We've seen that the the place of hell was designed for the devil and his angels, not for a human being. Now, there will be human beings there, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't designed for human beings. It's a place to and to remove sin, to cleanse sin from the universe because sin hurts people and God cannot allow sin to continue forever. And so between now and then, he's doing everything he can to make sure that we all have the chance to be saved. We have looked at what happens when the wicked go to this place of hell. We saw in Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 that in that day they will be stubble and they will be burnt up. There will be nothing left. And so there is no burning forever and ever and ever. So, where does this place of hell take place? If hell, it does not exist right now because it's a place that the resurrected wicked will be taken to, then where is hell? Where is it? In Revelation chapter 20 verse 9, the Bible says, They went up on the breadth of the whole earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, talking of the new Jerusalem. It says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Speaking of those who are resurrected in the resurrection of condemnation. So hellfire literally takes place on the earth. It's not some smoking place of the, of, of torture far underground or even some spiritual dimension where the, these spiritual torments take place. You know, the Bible describes that God destroyed the world with a global flood at the time of Noah. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter takes that, and that, that idea of the flood being used to cleanse the earth and he projects that to the end of the world and says that it will be cleansed by fire. And so this idea that fire will somehow burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and ever to consume these uh, immortal wicked people is completely... Unbiblical. The biblical perspective is that God uses the fire to cleanse, just like how we use fire today. We use fire to to burn up the rubbish in the undergrowth around our properties. We have back burning. We have burning off in order to burn up all that that excess fuel that is dangerous. And in the same sort of imagery, God projects this idea that fire will be used to cleanse not just earth, but the universe of the virus of sin once and for all. 
So where is this fire thing happening? It's happening on the earth. Another indication why there is no hell right now. Look around. The earth's not on fire. Everything's not being consumed. There hasn't been a great resurrection of the wicked. So this hell imagery is a future event. It's not some present continuum. Now, some people ask, well, how long will these fires burn for? And, you know, does it really matter? Like, does it matter if the people are burning forever and ever and ever or not? Well, this is the faith experiment, and I'm only interested in the facts. So, again, whatever your feelings are, I like to be respectful, but facts don't care about your feelings. Facts are facts. Feelings are subjective. So how long will these fires of hell burn for? Well, we've already seen in Malachi that they they burn up those that are in it. They consume them. But in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 14, it says, Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flames. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Pretty clear that there will be nothing left of hell and hellfire once the fire has completed the task of destroying sin. There'll be no coal to be warmed by, as the text says. There'll be no fire to sit before because the fires of hell must go out. And the teaching of eternal hell, it the, the unbiblical teaching of eternal hell, it doesn't solve the problem of sin, which is the whole purpose of this good news story that God has revealed to us. You see, an eternal hell perpetuates sin. It makes sin an eternal problem. And even worse, it then makes God look like some tyrant, which he isn't. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, he's trying to do everything he can to keep people from going to hell. And this picture of making God out to be the tyrant who oversees an eternal, perpetual burning of sinners perpetuates sin. Now, the concept of an eternal hell, of pain and torment, that's actually resulted in more atheists and non-believers than any other teaching of these manuscripts. And it's not because it's a biblical teaching, it's because of how people have misrepresented the teachings and the teaching of God. If this teaching were true, then the torture of the Nazis and Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden, uh, Saddam Hussein, any other one of these so-called evil tyrants of history... That would be nothing in comparison with the sadistic nature of God. At least all these other people I just mentioned, they actually let the people die. God's going to do all that and not let them die, according to popular teaching. Now, who do you think is trying to misrepresent God's character? Well, it's clearly not God. It's the enemy of God. Now, this is probably new to some of you listening out there. And you're probably asking, well, okay, Robbie, the text you've shared makes sense. Okay, the the idea of hell, yeah, it makes sense. It's for the devil and the angels, not meant for humans. Humans will be there because they've chosen to be there. God's doing everything he can to keep us from going to hell. Hell's currently not burning. It's in the future, and it will only last until there's something to consume, and then the fires will go out, and hell is on the earth. It's not under the earth, not in the earth, it's not above the earth. It's on the earth. So, Robbie, the question that you're probably thinking is, well, where on earth did the teaching come 
that we all understand and all believe right now. We believe that hell, most people believe that hell is, is right now in the ground somewhere, some place down there, and the wicked are all there burning since day one. How did this teaching come into existence in the Christian community then? Well, it's a good question. You see, the concept of an eternal hell is closely, if not directly, linked to the concept of an immortal or eternal soul. Now, remember on the last episode, we went through and saw how that there is no part of a human being that is immortal or eternal. We have God's breath in our body, and that gives us life, and the Bible calls that a living soul. Then we saw in the last episode that the soul that sins, which is all of us, it shall die. And we've seen that when we die, our breath returns back to God and our body returns to the ground. We cease to exist. The soul doesn't exist anymore because the soul is simply what you see in the mirror. And then we saw that we, according to Apostle Paul, we're supposed to be seeking after immortality, which we get at the last trumpet or the second coming or the resurrection. That's when we receive immortality because right now the Apostle Paul tells us that only God has immortality. So if we are clear that we do not have immortality of any part of our being, then it is impossible to be burning in hell in the state of death forever. But because the Christian community introduced this pagan teaching of the division of the human into an immortal part and to a mortal part, this created the problem around hell. And so a thousand and a bit years ago, as paganism came into the Christian faith, pagans were teaching that the good and evil were both eternal, and so they could never be destroyed, that part of us. And so a place for tormenting the evil was devised since the gods were powerless to destroy it. Think about this. You're a pagan. If you're immortal and you're evil, then, uh, well, we can't destroy you because you're immortal and you're eternal. So what do we do with you? Oh, we'll we'll trap you in this place of burning um, torture. And this is the idea that entered into the Christian church in sort of the late second century. And there were leaders in the church. These guys kept these teachings from paganism and introduced them into a biblical framework. And like many other doctrines, these concepts from paganism, as they entered the church and they started to be taught over a time, a period of time, a long period of time, they became accepted as doctrine, even though there wasn't a single biblical text to support this uh, theory. And as people entered into what we call the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, when the Bible was shut away from the masses and only the elite in the church had access to the Bible, you believed what you were told. You couldn't go read it for yourself. We didn't have the tools of looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and comparing Scripture with Scripture and word searches in the original language. None of that stuff existed. And so in the Dark Ages, you sit in the pew, and whatever that priest said is what you believed. And as we all know, if you if you teach something long enough, you repeat something long enough, people begin to accept it as fact. And so this understanding of hell has been held by most Christian denominations for hundreds of years. 
But if you actually sit down and open up the Bible and explore these simple questions from the manuscripts of Scripture from its entirety, not just cherry-picking one verse here, but look at all the text in the, in the overarching theme and story of Scripture, it's absolutely clear that the teaching that we have in Christianity of a God sending people to hell right now when they die, holding them there, burning them forever, keeping them in a place of torment, does not exist in the Bible. Will there be fires? Yes, they will be at the end. Will the wicked dead be resurrected? Yes, at the end. Will it be unfortunate to witness this? Absolutely. This isn't some um, simple fairy tale now that we just dismiss. There still is this idea of God cleansing the earth and the universe of sin with fire. That's biblical. But it happens at the end of the world, and it only lasts as long as there is something to consume, after which point, the fires go out. Well, let's go back now and have a look at those four original questions in light of what we've looked at from these ancient manuscripts. The first question came from Kelly, who asked, if God is a God of love, why is there a hell? Well, Kelly, I think in light of what we've looked at, it's very clear that God is a God of love. He's not willing that any should perish. In fact, for him, it is a strange thing to see the destruction of the wicked. And he has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. His whole plan of salvation is just that. It's a plan to save. So why is there a hell? Well, God also has to have justice. And at some point, God has to remove the thing that is bringing so much pain and suffering to his domain. And that thing is sin. And the only way God can get rid of that sin, well, the way that he's revealed is through this cleansing act of fire. And Jesus was clear that the intent of hell, its purpose was for the devil and his angels, those ones who were the closest to him and yet rejected him, and they chose death over life. And so this idea of hell, why is it there? It's there for cleansing. Now, it's unfortunate that there will be human beings in the fires of hell, and they will be there because they have fought everything they can to have their way. They've chosen to reject the gift of salvation and they have chosen sin and the consequences of sin over life. Question number two came from Megan, who asked the question, what is hell and when will it occur? Well, Megan, I think we've seen what hell is. Hell is the agent through which God will finally annihilate sin from his universe. It will cleanse the world from the virus, which is sin. And when will it occur? Well, it is not now, as is commonly held as a belief. We've seen that it will occur at the end. It will occur after the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Two different resurrections. It will occur after that, and it will occur as the new Jerusalem is returning to this earth. And question number three came from Brian, who asked, Where on earth is hell? What does the Bible teach? Is it at the center of the earth, or is it in another dimension? Well, Brian, I think we've answered that question pretty clearly. It is on earth, and it is not yet been, so that's why no one can find it. You can't go looking for hell down there or up there or over there. Hell is a future event, and it is not going to be a spiritual dimension. It will be the physical dimension as you and I all exist in. And the last question, question number four, came from Adrian, who asked the question, Why will sinners suffer and burn in hell forever and ever? Well, Adrian, if you're listening today, I hope that you understand that sinners will not suffer and burn in hell forever and ever. The Bible is very clear. God is not giving immortality 
to the lost. Immortality is the gift of the righteous, the saved, the redeemed, those who have taken the gift of eternal life. Those who have rejected that gift, they will be consumed by fire. They will be cleansed because of sin. And that cleansing will only last as long as there is something to cleanse. Once the cleansing has taken place, once everything is consumed and burnt up, the fires go out. And they have to go out because there will be a new heaven and a new earth in the very spot, in the very place where this hellfire cleansing mechanism takes place. So I hope that answers the four questions about hell. If you have any other questions, then now is a good time to get your phone out and to get ready to text today's code word because the code word for today is for this great book called The Hot Topic of Hell. It's a topic that biblical writers have written about, preachers have preached about, people talk about, and many have questions about it. And even after today's show, I'm sure you still have some questions. So you want to get this book, it's a perfect aid to dig deeper into today's topic. So to get this book, all you have to do is take out your phone and text this code word to the Faith Experiment number. The Faith Experiment number is 04-888-45311. You want to text the code word, which is a hashtag. It's hash, the pound symbol or the hash key. Hash F-E, F-E for Faith Experiment. So hash F-E and then number 36 for episode 36. So that's it. No other words, no spaces, no thank yous, no pleases. Just simply text hash FE36 and the Faith Experiment SMS bot will reply to you with some questions and you just need to respond to that and we will get this book out to you as soon as possible. So text the code word hash FE36. Text that to 04888 Well, that's all I have time for today on this week's episode of The Faith Experiment. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'd love to hear your feedback, your questions or comments. You can email me on Robbie at faithfm.com.au or text me on 04888 Well, that's all for now. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.